quiet. I'm in Romans chapter 8, talking about hope. The next two Sundays, I'm going to talk about love from two great love passages, including 1 Corinthians 13. So I'm doing faith, hope, and love in May. And everybody knows what summer's coming, because I told you last week I was going to do the book of Philippians, and we're going to call it Picture Joy. Thirteen messages. We'll start at verse 1, go to the end of the book of Philippians. A little letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi. You may remember that church in Philippi. It was a jailer in Philippi who said, What must I do to be saved? Remember that? All right. We're collecting the children down here, so children are ready for their kids' church. Romans 8, 22 where the Apostle Paul writes, and I urge you to read the whole chapter, all right? This is a great, great chapter. It begins with no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, and it ends with no separation. And in between, it tells us how we live in the providence of God. Verse 22 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they have already? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Hope has always been understood among the people of God as that expectation that one time God is going to judge evil in the future and create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness reigns. So anytime you see the word hope in the Bible, you've got to understand it's not a short-term hope. It's not simply, I hope I get a good grade on this exam, or I hope I'm going to do well in my work. The word hope in the Bible, and particularly in your New Testament, points to a grand and glorious hope that we have in Christ. Christ died for our sins according to the good news of the gospel. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And his resurrection gives us all kinds of hope in all sorts of situations and circumstances. Therefore, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we are future-oriented. We really turn our faces toward the future. While we have a great history and we remember all that God has done with his people of faith in the old covenant as well as the new, and we rehearse at the Lord's table, we remember the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. We have great memories and great tradition, but as we take our orientation in this life, we are looking toward the future. Jesus says, lift up your head, your redemption draws an eye. I'm coming in the eastern sky. It's going to split wide open, and your redemption's going to come. So we are looking forward to the intervention of God in human history. We believe God created human beings, and he created the entire world, and he is working his creation toward its culminating purpose in Christ, and that is our great hope. 
and all other hopes that we have are set in the context of this wonderful hope, which I got to rehearse this very week with somebody near the end of life, talking to them about the glorious hope we have in Christ and that our bodies go into the ground, but our spirits go to God as we trust in Him for our salvation. So this is our grand and glorious hope, and we never turn loose of it. This is central. This is how we, uh, we orient our lives toward this great hope. Paul talks throughout this chapter about how we hurt. Pain is our common plight. We suffer. He says in this, in this chapter, the sufferings that we presently have are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So he is immediately setting the pain of your life and mine in the context of this grand and glorious hope we have in Christ. The pain comes uninvited, usually, sometimes unexpected. Sometimes it's a terrible surprise, the hurt we feel. The pain is not just superficial. It's not just one day. It's pain sometimes it comes and stays. Paul understands the nature of that pain. He talks himself about the pain he experiences in the body. He actually writes these in the letters where he has experienced physical pain and trouble. Sometimes that's the nature of our pain. And we have to manage our pain. Sometimes our pain is mental. Paul talks about how God who comforts the depressed comforted me with the coming of Titus. It's part of Paul's testimony that in the midst of all of his missionary work and the good things he sought to do in the world, he still suffered sometimes from discouragement and even depression. Some of the translations actually use the word depress to describe the Apostle Paul. And he was in this terrible circumstance and he shared it with the church. And he wanted them to know because it was a human being who came to, to rescue him in his discouragement and his trouble. He says, God who comforts the depressed comforted me with the coming of a fellow named Titus. Maybe you could put your name in there. Somebody discouraged, somebody depressed, somebody really down in the dumps, and God sends you to them, and you are God's messenger to them. God comforts them through you, and you walk away from that experience knowing that you have been the conduit of God's grace to an individual, that this is literally God using you in somebody's life. Sometimes our pain is emotional and spiritual. And we hurt deeply. And we feel alienated. Paul is so honest about this pain that he feels in his life, about the suffering that comes his way. And he mentions it not only in this chapter, but over and over again. If you read 2 Corinthians, you'll lay your hand on the heart of the apostle as he shares from the very center of his being what's going on in his life. He does that to encourage us. He wants us to know that if we are hurting physically, mentally, emotionally, that he hurt that way too. And that's a common plight in the human family. 
I participated in a discussion some months ago that was called the Congressional Conversation About Race. I was invited by Congressman Cedric Richmond to be part of this Congressional Conversation. And this week, a couple of folks came to interview me about that experience. And they said to me, what is the most memorable part of that discussion for you? I said, without doubt, without doubt, it is the moment when they asked the group, when did you first become aware of race? And people I have known for many years, leaders in our community, began to share stories from their childhood of when they first became aware that there were blacks and there were whites and there were Hispanics. And those narratives touched my heart. And I will not forget them. They were sharing an intimate part of their experience that was also very painful to them and lasted in its duration right up to the present time. They remember how they felt when they became aware of that. I told this person, in future conversations, the more narratives we can hear about what it's like to be white or black or born as a minority, the more we will understand the real heart of the issue. And so Paul opens up to tell us about his condition and the things that happened to him and the way he experienced them in order that if you are discouraged or depressed or you are hurting or you are struggling with pain and the pain is very real, that you will know you are not alone and that God is the great comforter who brings hope. Now, the whole creation groans and travails in pain until now. Paul says that in this passage. The whole creation groans and travails in pain. It's not just humans. It feels like the whole planet is in pain. And all humans experience it, but not all humans experience hope. All humans hurt, but not all humans hope. In fact, I am startled at how much hopelessness and nihilism there is in popular media and cinema. How dead end the world looks to so many people. How bleak it does. It accounts in part for the bleakness and terror of sci-fi movies. I mean, they must be the bleakest part of our art as a culture because people don't have hope. They hurt, but they don't have hope. We suffer, but not as those who have no hope. Amen? Our pain is in the context of a great hope that we have in Christ. Even as we look at the Lord Jesus, who is our supreme example as well as our Savior, we see in Him how He handles pain. 
Jesus went to the cross despising the shame. Why? Because he was looking forward to what God was going to do through the pain that he experienced on the cross. Your pain is not wasted in the providence of God. It is in the context of suffering and groaning and pain and childbirth that the apostle talks about all things work together for good. You don't need Romans 8, 28. When things are going swimmingly along and there doesn't seem to be any opposition in your life and all you touch turns to gold. You need Romans 8, 28 when the way is dark and you're in the canyon and the deepest valley you've ever been in. When your child is sick and hurting, it's the most helpless feeling. When you want to ask God, why? Why, God? Why allow this in the world? That's when you need Romans 8, 28. And it works for people of hope who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, who are anchored in him. That's who it works for. We hurt and we wait. Delayed but expecting. We wait delayed but eager, with eager anticipation of what is coming. Everybody here knows, I hate to wait. All right? I was in such a hurry getting through college. I was in such a hurry getting through seminary. I just did not want to wait. I did not want to linger. I wanted to get on with my life. And I did everything fast with the pedal to the metal. Because I hate to wait. And there's some of you just like that, don't you? The waiting room. Who in the world named it that? Wow, we don't want to wait. And if waiting has no hope in it, it is a painful, frustrating, lonely process. When you wait and you have no hope. But if you wait with hope in your heart, the time of waiting is not wasted but God uses it for his glory in your life. The apostle Paul was a guy who really wanted to get things done, wasn't he? He ran around his part of the world doing all kind of good things by ship and on foot and all over Asia Minor. He went planting churches and doing his work and then they locked him up. They put him in jail. Don't you know that was frustrating to the man who wrote these words? Locked up in jail, God, what is this about? I have work to do. The churches, I've got the burden on my heart for all these churches. All the good work I must do. What are you doing, God? Why lock me up at this point in my life? I need to be out there doing my missionary work, fulfilling my calling. You ever feel like that? Maybe sitting in a seminary dorm room? Thinking, God, why am I going through three years, God? That's a long time. But what did God do in the waiting period of the Apostle Paul? Well, he wrote letters. He wrote letters from prison. We have letters from prison that Paul wrote. 
arguably the most lasting impact he had on the planet was when he was sitting in a cell locked up with no weight, no place to go anywhere and, and having to wait. And God used the waiting time to fill him up full of his Holy Spirit and deliver to us the beautiful words we've read today and will study in the summer. God does that in the time of your waiting if you will wait with a hopeful expectation that the God who works all things together for good is going to do that in your life. Can you trust him? Can you trust him? You know, the foster kids wait in our community. They wait for the social worker as she gets on the phone and starts making calls. Sometimes they wait, wait for hours sitting in her office, having been removed from their home in the middle of the night because it is no longer a safe place to be. They are brought to the office of the state department that takes care of them, and they wait, and sometimes they listen while phone calls are made. There is a community in this country a community of faith within that community said, we're going to change who waits in this community. And they started actively recruiting families to be part of the foster care system, people who were willing to join in an effort to give the best possible experience to kids who are removed from their homes because they are in danger. And their whole effort was... Let's change who waits. Let's, let's not let the little foster kids wait anymore. Let's let foster families wait on children with their open arms. And so one or two calls is all they need to make, and they find a foster family ready to receive that child. Did you ever see Despicable Me? I thought it was a great movie, all right? That's because I'm really 12 and always will be. I love those three little orphans, don't you? They go at, to bed at night and they pray, Oh God, give us a family, give us parents. They go out to sell candy all day long. They bring back their report to the director of the orphanage who is not satisfied with how much money they make and berates them and says to them, Do you think anybody will ever adopt you? You think you'll ever be adopted? Nobody wants you. Can you imagine the plight of these foster kids? There aren't enough families, so they have to split them up. Trauma enough that you've got to leave the house and the people that you know who have cared for you. Now you can't stay with your brother or your sister. You've got to go to different houses because not enough people in the community will help out with the need. Can you think about the frustration of being passed from one place to another? It's not just 500 kids in the system today in our region. It's thousands of children who are touched by this system that's really understaffed and under-resourced and straining just to manage one day's task at a time. Can you imagine those kids who 
age out of the system and have no mom to be there at graduation no dad or dad figure to walk her down the aisle they are alone in the world that's why the apostle said we are waiting for adoption we're waiting for adoption because there's no deeper longing in the human heart than to be connected to a mom or dad who loves you in order that he might express how deep and intimate and personal this longing is in our hearts he says we are waiting for adoption the wonderful thing is here we already have the first fruits of what God intends for us and this is our hope we hurt we wait but thank God we hope we already have the first fruits God has intervened in our life he has given us a new home in glory he has saved us from our sin he has forgiven us we know now that we stand in God's presence and we are clean before him because of the work Christ did on the cross for us so we have all this wonderful spiritual work that God has done in us and the scripture says it's only the beginning it's only the beginning yeah you still got pain yeah your your body hurts your your mind your spirit you still hurt but God is going to complete this process of, of adoption as he brings you fully into his presence in that future day. We are waiting for adoption, and then there's a comma. That is the redemption of our bodies. He says, inwardly we groan because we want to be there now. We want to be delivered from this trouble. God has left us here for a purpose, and he draws us toward his future as we hope in him. Do you have hope today? Do you have a hope that transcends the short term? Almost every week, I talk to somebody who is on the last leg of life, in the last days of life as I did this week. What sustains you when your body is decayed to the point that it cannot be healed? What sustains you is your hope in Christ. With heaven as your home and the Holy Spirit within you, with Jesus as your Savior and companion in your walk, knowing that He never leaves you or forsakes you, knowing that He is present with you in the difficulty that you bear, even as your body falls apart and you face your own demise, a hope builds in you as God sustains you moment by moment and you look forward to seeing Him face to face Fanny J. Crosby was blind 
But she said, I shall know him. I shall know him. And redeemed by his side I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him by the print of the nails in his hand. <laughs> he who has been with us in our pain and trouble is waiting for us on the other side loving us inexplicably, overwhelmingly, wanting us to be with him, mystery of all mysteries, that he made us for himself, and he draws us to himself, and he says, I'm never going to leave you, and one day I'm going to come and get you, so that where I am, there you may be also. Let's bow together. Do you know him? Lord, we pray that you would place the flame of faith in every heart in this room. That we would make our journey here not in hopelessness and doubt and despair, but in faith and hope and the eager expectation of being with you. I pray for the one whose struggle is greatest, who bears the greatest pain, that hope will sustain them today and in the days to come. Lord, that you would become more real to every heart that you would make yourself known not only through your word and your spirit but through your people who bring your comfort to those in need I pray God that you would unleash us all of us to be messengers of your comfort to those who need hope in our circle of influence. Lord, thank you for your presence here and the power you give us to live the life you've called us to live. We're trusting and hoping in you. In Jesus' name, amen.